Thank you, Lord. So welcome if you're joining us today as a guest. Um, those who come regularly know that I'm inflicting a story from the book of Daniel. And so we're going to explore that a little bit more. And I promise it does relate to the baptism. And I'll try and help you uh, catch up. And we're in Daniel chapter 3. And we're returning to this, the account of when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three Jewish young men, refused to bow to an idol that the emperor or the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had made out of his sense of self. It sounds quite familiar. People take their sense of self, they put it on a pedestal, and they demand that you worship it. And, uh, and so he did this, but because he was king and had an army, he could sort of like back it up with not just, you know, I'll unfriend you. He said, I'll undo you. And, uh, and they refused, respectfully, but absolutely. And he's furious because they then refused to respect his right to make God in his own image. He demands the right to make God who he wants him to be. And they say, we will not bow. Quite a thought, actually. He's not demanding that they stop worshiping their God. He's just demanding the right to define God for himself and that they should honor it. And, uh, and they say, no, because there's only one God. You didn't make him. He made you. And if he made you, you've got to work out who he is, not the other way around. You don't. None of us. None of us. I mean, how, how crazy to think that we could make a God and then get really upset when other people don't worship, which brings us to our story. They get reported to the king, and furious with rage, his pride has been hurt, his ego has been bruised. He summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men are brought before the king. He says to them, guys, is it true that you did not worship the gods or image of gold that I've set up? Now, when you hear the band play, and there's all the instruments that were there, if you're ready to bow down and worship the image I've made, very good. He didn't just want to kill them. He had just given them a really expensive university training and offered them lots of royal food and stuff like that. And so he had an investment, and he's giving them another go. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. No, they don't attack him. They don't threaten him. They, don't, they just say no. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. In other words, you don't have the say over our final destiny and lot in life. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with them. His attitude changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded uh, his strongest soldiers in the army to tie them up and throw them in the furnace so these men, wearing all their kit of the day and of their status and office, because they were very high up in government, are tossed in, they're bound, and then they're thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent that the, fire, the soldiers who took them to the fire, they themselves 
uh, died, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fall into the furnace. They fall into the blazing furnace. We want you to know, King, that even if he doesn't save us, we won't bow. We're not going to bow. You don't define God. He does. We're not going to bow. They fall into the blazing furnace. They go down. Someone else gets up. Then Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet in amazement, asks his advisors, weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. He approached the opening of the blazing furnace and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. The satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. I would have probably qualified for that. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of the fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him defied the king's command, were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. He's getting so close. You'll have to come back next time I preach, which is a long time, because we've got really good stuff happening between now and then. He's getting really close, but he's not yet there. But then he says, so I decree that the people of any nation language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble because clearly furnaces don't work. And uh, <laughs> no other God can save in this way. And then he promoted them or caused them to prosper in the province of Babylon. So, quick summary. This is not a Disney story about everyone standing up for what they believe in. It's exactly the wrong point. They stayed standing because of what they did not believe in. You know, we told in a pluralistic world, you have your own truth. I have my truth, you have your truth, and, and we're all just supposed to accept that everyone's right until I really disagree, and then, you know, in a world in which nobody's wrong quickly becomes a world, especially on social media, uh, a world in which everybody's right quickly becomes a world in which I'm never wrong. And that becomes a really fraught, difficult space. This is not a Disney story about everyone standing up for what they believe in. This is a story about confronting polytheism in that day and pluralism. In other words, the belief that everything is right in our day. They refuse to bow to a man-made God because they believe in God made man. In the beginning, God created. And so they describe as the Lord being the God we serve, not the other way around. You see, when gods are man made, 
gods are expected to perform a function for us. They must serve us. They must do what we want. They must provide the rain. They must multiply the crops. They must heal us from sickness. They must give wisdom and direction. They must make me win at the lottery. Whatever it is, man-made gods serve men. But when God makes, those who are wise learn that he is the God we serve. And they stake their lives on the truth underneath their faith. This is not just, you know, they're sincere about what they believe. They've thought through the truth component of their faith massively, and they stake their lives on it. And their own theology did not guarantee that they would be delivered or saved. That's pretty intense stuff going on. So... You know, the belief that everyone has a truth that is true for them. <sighs> Don't think that God is useful because of what he will do for you. Wrestle with who is God. And you will discover as you wrestle that God will do more amazing things than you can ever ask or imagine. But no God that we have made is ever worth serving. And so they, they literally stake their lives on the fact that it's better to die for the truth than to live for a lie. And that's where we pick up the story. Now, I want to jump a little bit to the end of the story, to Nebuchadnezzar's response. Because today I want to focus on the middle bit. And then we're going to come back because Nebuchadnezzar's response continues in chapter 4. He's still like being warmed up by God. But chapter 4 is a really important part of Nebuchadnezzar's story. But let me quickly make this comment about Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he admires their faith, but he still does not turn to God. He even admits his mistake. You know, if you look at verse 15, verses 29, what God can rescue you from my hand versus no other God can save in this way. It's a, it's a bit of a climb down for, you know, the, the ruler of a world empire. But then he offers this incredible, creating, saving, most high God, his protection. Like if you say anything against this guy now, then I'm going to rip you limb from limb and I'm going to turn your house into rubble. And he's actually like so condescending, like so paternal. I mean, if God can do this, like what the heck are you thinking you need to back him for. And sometimes we need to just take a cue from this. God doesn't need defenders. He's big enough. You know, sometimes you pray and you don't get an answer or whatever. Sometimes you've asked me, tell me why. And I say, I don't know. Tell him he's big enough. I'm not yet to fight for him. I'm here to serve him. I'm not yet to defend him. He defends me. I'm not here to define him. He gives me my identity. So what's the problem? He's so proud. I need to prop God up. No. You know, in pluralism, people will often say this. Remember, I admire your faith. I love your passion. I see it means a lot to you. I'm glad it works for you. Guys, 
This is not a compliment. It's a cop-out. It's a way of pushing the truth to a distance. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to face the real truth about the real God. And so he says, I'll take care of him. I'll make sure no one says anything nasty about him. I'll use all my savage power to make this happen. And so his supersized ego refuses to face the truth. We really don't need to go there. And the great thing about the book of Daniel is God doesn't leave him there. Come back next time. So back to the furnace. It was probably a brick kiln. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are firmly tied. They're thrown into the fire, but they do not burn. And so Nebuchadnezzar starts a commission of inquiry. It's always what politicians do when they've made a mistake. You know, they hope. He's like, guys, what happened? Somebody tell me. You know, like you threw them in the fire, king. You know, what's going on? This isn't what I anticipated. And so, you know, he calls his judges and everybody, and they're going to uh, deal with his mess. Why is he so stunned? Because in the fire... At least two things, maybe more, but I'm just going to highlight two. Two things happen. Someone else joins them. And the only things that burn are the ropes that bind them. Two things happen. Someone else comes into that place of death and pain. And the only things that burn the ropes that bind them. I want to unpack these. The someone who joins them is described by Nebuchadnezzar, and he's using his like Aramaic Babylonian categories. We can't read too much into his theology and to the theologians out there. I'm aware this is a minefield, and I'm neatly walking around it, okay? Um, <laughs> He's described like one of the son of the gods as an angel. Now, the angel represents the presence of God. And often and often in scripture, when people encounter this kind of angel, they said to be encountering God himself. And so an angel shows up and then it says, and God said, or the Lord said. So Joshua had this kind of experience. Others had this kind of experience. And listen, there's always a mystery when God comes. You're never going to explain it all. Every time. There's always a mystery when God comes. But when he comes, the things that bind us, the things that wound us, they must let go. So I want to give this two applications. The first is pastoral. So we're already at application, hey? that's impressive. But don't worry, the second application point is the whole sermon. So <laughs> this is all intro. Now this weekend has been the Alpha Course, Holy Spirit, Come Holy Spirit weekend, introducing the person of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and inviting his presence to come. 
and fill each person. And this year we did it slightly differently to those who've done Alpha before. First, helping people through the journey of dealing with painful things they might need to forgive so that God's love and power can come and drive out the darkness and fill them again. And all of us, whether you were new to the course, whether you'd been there a long while, those who just came to pray towards the end of Saturday, we watched in wonder as people started opening up about some very painful episodes in their lives. And they described fires of hurt, of abuse, of betrayal, of trust, and much worse. And watching how God comes close to people in the fires of their pain. Helping them to forgive. Helping them break free from the pain of what others have done in the fire. The ropes that bind us can break free if we'll let God come. And so as with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's God's presence with us in the fire that keeps us through the fire. Remember, they were thrown into the fire. I mean, they are saved from the fire, but not by not going into it. They're saved from the fire through the fire. You know, sometimes the Lord is literally the rescuer. You don't fight the battle. You don't face the enemy. Pharaoh and his army drown in the sea as you walk on dry ground. Sometimes you get that from God, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes we face stuff. God does not always save us from the fire, but it's in the fire that you can get to see how close he is and what he will do if you'll trust him. David said, even though I walk around the valley of the shadow of death. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for your rod and your star are with me. They comfort me. We need a faith that can celebrate when Pharaoh and his armies drown and we walk on dry ground. But as your pastor, I want to tell you, we also need a faith that trusts him in the fire. We don't know beforehand. Remember, they didn't know. Even if he doesn't, I'm not negotiating my faith. This is not transactional. It's not if he does, then I will. So I'm walking into this, and I trust him completely, and I trust him alone, and that is how I navigate this space. In the fire, we get to see how close he is. And then the prophetic and the theological application of this story. You know, like the Exodus or like crossing the Jordan River, this is an archetypal victory. In other words, it's a victory that helps picture 
in a prophetic way a whole bunch of stuff about the victory of God in some of the toughest places we face. Now, you know, as I watch the sunrise this morning, Sundays I never uh, not see the sunrise. And after the weather of the last while, I've got to say, I looked at this glorious day emerging and I thought, sure, what a good day for a baptism. And I sensed Abba just shaking his head. And as clear as a bell, it was like, son, every day is a good day for a baptism. <laughs> and I was so reminded of church planting back in the KwaZulu-Natal Midlands. And uh, at first, we didn't even have a building. And even when we had a building, it didn't have a baptistry. So all our baptisms were under an open heaven. Um, and sometimes that open heaven was also pelting with snow and who knows what. We baptized in high Drakensberg mountain streams. We baptized down in the coast in the ocean. We baptized in estuaries. We baptized in swimming pools. If people were starting to put their faith in Jesus, it was a joy to do what you know, Acts chapter 8 describes in the conversation between an African eunuch and uh, the first African believer, by the way, and, uh, and Philip the evangelist, he says, there's water, what prevents me from getting baptized? So that was pretty much our thing. You know, it wasn't like, I believe, let's phone Andrea and find a spot in the church calendar. Um, and maybe we should go back to that. You know, it was just so amazing. In any case, I remember one occasion, this couple, they, he was a top, top architect in the country, really. And they had the most magnificent house, high on an escarpment above Peter Marisburg. You could literally see the sea 50 kilometers away. And they had the most amazing rim flow pool that uh, looked down, out, oh, you know, down the drop, the escarpment, and then across the flats, and then down to Durban in the distance, and then you could see the sea. And so, you know, when I'd been leading them to the Lord and everything like that, they said, we want to get baptized. And I thought, this is perfect, like, you know. And then there were a bunch of other people who wanted to get baptized. So I think we had seven people wanting to get baptized on that particular, I don't know, Friday or Saturday. Except it was midwinter, and on that day, you could see nothing. We were like in mist, and it wasn't quite snowing. We were a bit too low, but it was freezing. The other thing is I'd never tested this pool before. It was a beautiful rim flow pool that was entirely two meters deep. And so when you stand inside this thing, it just goes. <laughs> so I thought of just standing, asking the questions and then like, you know, <laughs> sending them in. But, you know, being a good pastor, I felt I should, like, you know, do the thing. So eventually we got one of those folding ladders and we put it down at an angle into the water. And then instead of thinking and having them stand at the top and asking him as a group, do you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh? Have you received him as your Savior and Lord? I did what I normally do is which I ask him individually in the water because it's so nice. So now I'm standing on this slippery ladder at a slope going down into oblivion. There's, I can literally see the 300 meters past the glass window, you know. And then, uh, so I'm standing there on this thing, 
and the first person makes their way down. But now it's very tricky. I'm standing on the ladder. They've got to share the ladder with me. I ask them the questions. I put them in the water. Out they come. I pray with them in that moment that the heavens would stay open, that the Holy Spirit would come and fill them with his love. And they slowly make their way out, and everyone claps and cheers. There's hugs and a song, and then the next person walks in. I do that seven times. The last lady, her name was Cheryl. I was so cold, I called her Jenny. Um, I had, I told her in that day, she's still a friend, actually, a good friend. When they need stuff, they call. Um, but when she, uh, I, I said to her, well, you know, at baptisms, if, if your name meant, you know, Allah is God, then you get given a new name at your baptism. So that, I said, from now on, you Jenny, I'm sorry. So I still sometimes when she messages say, hello, Jenny, and we laugh because, we remember a freezing day high on an escarpment above Peter Maritzburg. What's that got to do with this? Ah, baptisms. You know, this points to the greatest deliverance and victory of them all. You see, baptism represents a washing, being forgiven, and being purified. There's a difference, by the way. Being forgiven is that you're not going to be punished anymore. Being purified, the dirt is gone. You're clean. You're really clean. The one who is holy makes us holy. The one who is righteous makes us righteous. It's part of the picture of baptism. It's about being immersed into the heart and into the spirit of God. Everything that's true of his affections and his mind and his purposes, you're being immersed into that you're being immersed into a community into his family into the people of God and you're joining their mission you've been living for your mission and now you're joining his mission together with his people this is all in the symbolism and then of course there is this represents new life as you lower someone into the water it's like you burying them but then they rise and you're modeling the glory of a new life. Why? Because in Christian theology, you're identifying with Jesus in his death. And you're rising with him to new life in his resurrection. These are the pictures that are going to literally play out before us. And there's something more about it. It's, the technical term is it's almost like sacramental or mystical. As we do this, sometimes you literally experience it. So, if that's what our baptism symbolizes, have you ever wondered what the baptism of Jesus symbolized? Gosh, Craig, you're making us work hard. Eh? Oh, man. So, Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus, this is the baptism of Jesus early on in his life. He comes from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. You come to me? Jesus replied, and this is where we're going to just pause for a moment. Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So John said yes. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up 
out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. We saw the Spirit. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, landing on him. And a voice came from heaven and said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm so pleased. So what's going on? What does the baptism of Jesus symbolize? At his baptism, Jesus identifies with us, even as Father God identifies with Jesus. Jesus tells John he must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Now, he's not doing it to be righteous, as if I'm just doing the right thing. He's not doing it to become righteous, as if he was unrighteous, and then he gets baptized, and then he's righteous. He's doing it to fulfill all righteousness. He's going to satisfy it. He's going to fill it up. He's going to make it overflow. That's a lovely thought. You see, when, when something is, the idea comes from the word play Roma, which means abundance and overflow. And so, out of fulfilling righteousness, righteousness is going to start to overflow to many. And so, fulfilling the law, for example, meant more than doing the law. It meant completing it, satisfying it, accomplishing its fundamental purpose, so much so that it overflows. To fulfill a prophecy would be not just to try and say it or even do it, but to satisfy the very definition thereof. And so to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus needs to identify with you and me. And he does so at his baptism. Imagine a world tormented by sin, suffering and evil. From heaven's perspective, it's like a deadly furnace. You go in there, you die. At his baptism, Jesus goes public. What was hidden at his birth and incarnation is now declared. And he identifies with our need for forgiveness and a new life. He says, if that's what people need to live again, if that's what people need to be clean, I am joining them. Count me as if I was fallen. Count me as if I was a sinner. The Father says, I count you as my son. So there's like this tension going on. Jesus identifying with us. The Father identifying with Jesus. Jesus, fully human in every way, tempted but without sin. Jesus, fully God, true God of true God. He's becoming our representative. He's stepping into the fire. God loves you more than you know. He loves us. He loves us so much that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not die. 
that have the life of the eternal ages even now. And his baptism, his identification with us at his baptism leads directly to his own suffering and death on the cross. He takes it all into himself, onto himself. He became sin. So that like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We can walk out of this trauma, this furnace of suffering and evil, without even the smell of smoke on our garments of righteousness. Literally, that's what God wants to do. Not only are they alive, they are untouched. This leads to the resurrection. And the ropes that bind are broken. They can walk out because God has come to them in the fire. And there is this complete wonderment. There's this complete amazement. These guys, think of it. Watch me. Think of it. (laughs) They're walking out of the fire. Can you imagine? This blazing furnace. There's dead bodies around of the soldiers. And out come these guys, and they are completely standing in awe and wonder. They are not only alive, they are untouched. They have no smell of the fire. Galatians 3, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. For all of you who were baptized into Christ are now clothed with Christ. Here's the parallel. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by faith in Jesus, when Jesus goes into the fire for us, we come out saved and clean. But there is a difference, just like with what Jesus did and mirrored in the the Exodus and what Jesus did at Jordan. There is a difference. When Jesus comes out of the tomb and the disciples gather around him and they can't believe it, there's There's probably even more wonder in that moment. You know, John tells us the doors were locked and Jesus comes in and goes, no, he doesn't. (laughs) I think they would have all died if he had done that. (laughs) But suddenly they realize, this is Jesus. We saw him die. We saw them in the furnace. And they've come out and they don't smell of smoke. We saw him die. We don't smell of smoke. But he still carries the scars. He is victorious because without sin, he has paid for mine. And he carries the scars. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did there such love? 
and sorrow me. O thought composed so rich, you are not meant to carry the scars. You're not meant to smell of the fire. He's your Savior. He alone carries the scars.